online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again. This is Food FM. Hello and welcome to Food FM Stories. Food FM are a global digital radio station telling powerful personal, political and uplifting food stories from around the globe. My name is Sai Alexander. I'm a senior producer at Food FM. And this week I had the privilege of attending the Speciality Fine Food Fair at Olympia in London. The Speciality Fine Food Fair is the UK's leading showcase of artisanal food and drink. Uh, It was my first time at the event and it was incredible to see the passion, the enthusiasm bursting out of every single unit, bench and stall at the fair. Despite the adversity faced by well everyone over the last few years, especially in the hospitality and food and drink sectors, the attitude and the gusto with which all of the exhibitors inhibited was amazing and so reassuring to see. During the next two podcasts, we speak to those businesses who attended the show. We talk to them about the people and stories behind the business, what makes them unique and different. We also talk to them about pertinent factors within this industry, such as sustainability, cost of living, and the impact world events have on supply chains. In this episode, we speak to Patrick from the Tinned Fish Market, Laura at Cakes from the Lakes, Stephen from Loundon Chocolate, Jack at White Box Cocktails, Jonathan from Hawkshead Relish, and Amy from Delicious. First, though, I had the pleasure of sitting down on the Food for Thought stage on the Tuesday morning with Andre Lewis, who is the head of Food, Wine, Drinks and Spirits at Harrods. We took a deep dive into life at one of the most famous and iconic department stores in the world. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Food for Thought stage. Uh, Thanks for joining us this morning. It's been a great two days. My name's Simon Alexander. I'm an executive producer at Food FM and host of the Nightcap podcast, Life Behind the Michelin Star. And today I'm really lucky to be joined by Andre Lewis, who is the head of food at Harrods for a deep dive into all things Harrods, operationally, sustainability. We'll cover a few topics. We'll also do uh, a few questions at the end uh, if we do have time. So if you want to think of any, just raise your hand for the last few minutes and we'll get a mic sent out uh, into the audience. Uh, but Andre, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Really looking forward to this chat. Um, just for a bit of context, I just mm. wondered if you could explain to us and everyone um, how you and when you got the job, but also your sort of background, how you came to where you are today. Yeah, Um, well, I've always been in food, always been in retail for my entire career. Uh, My first uh, job post-graduation was with a company called Abel & Cole, which is a small-ish, but growing, uh, online uh, retailer specializing in organic food. And I managed to uh, blag my way into a job as a fruit and veg buyer. Uh, and in many ways, I still think of myself still as a fruit and veg buyer with, you know, muddy wellies out in the field. That's uh, kind of, you know, one of, modern, one of my happy places. Yeah. Um, but obviously, as my career went on, I gained more of an appreciation for other product categories. And I had the opportunity to really buy across the entire spectrum of categories with Abel and Cole, um, plus a, a sort of stint uh, as the youngest buyer at the time at Waitrose. Wow. Um, uh, I think I was a bit of a rabbit in the headlights when I, when I joined Waitrose <laughs> as the youngest buyer. But it was an amazing time because it was their period of fastest growth. Um, they were opening stores left, right and centre. And there was a real sense of momentum at the time. Um, and so what we could achieve with the products, with the supply chains, with range reviews, with MPD was, was pretty unprecedented, I think. Um, and unusually for Waitrose, which was relatively small compared to the supply base, gave some more... Um, I suppose, balanced conversations with the larger um, yeah. suppliers as to what, you know, what could be achieved and what the priorities were. So that was a, a useful time. But I'd stayed in touch with Keith Abel, the founder of Abel & Cole, and he asked me back to uh, drive the basket at Abel & Cole, which was really just a fruit and veg box scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said to me, just see what you can get other people to buy. Yeah. And so I spent about five years building sustainable supply chains in meat, fish, poultry um, and prepared foods, uh, dairy as well Uh, and people really picked up on it and uh, we were always challenging ourselves to get over the 25 pounds basket size with Abel and Cole Um, and by the time I left there as the head of buying in 2017 uh, we were well over 30 pounds you know these were modest numbers at the time but for a small growing business it was very exciting we found that for chicken 
for eggs, for milk. People had a real passion for the organic side of things, for the sustainability, for the story, for the single farm provenance, yeah. um, which is still something I'm personally very passionate about today. Um, 2017, I was approached by Harrods, who were just at the beginning of a generational sort of investment program in the food halls. Uh, first time since the early 80s, I think, there'd been any, which was, you know, my kind of, when I was a, a child, where there'd been any investment um, really of, of note in the whole Harrods building and in the food halls. And so for the past five years, we've been refurbishing the four historic food halls. Five, if you include the Wines and Spirits room downstairs, which I'm also responsible for. Wow. And my time there's been cycling through the Fresh Food Hall, uh, the Chocolate Hall, uh, the, the Ambient Food Hall, which includes bakery, uh, the Wines and Spirits Hall uh, as well. So design, direction, resourcing all of the product. It's been a comprehensive sort of project over the past five years. Back in 2017, after your experience at Waitrose, Abel and Cole, did you then feel ready for it? Did you feel like, it, you know, because it was obviously such a prestigious brand, globally recognised brand, did you feel ready for that opportunity That's when it came along? That's a good question. Um, I think my career has probably, probably been characterised by taking the next job just before I was ever ready for it. Yeah. Um, and um, I don't know if anyone else has had that experience in their, in their careers or, or not, but um, certainly a, a, a degree of... Um, well, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being over-modest, but perhaps, you know, faking it till you make it. But I think the, the, the thing that's made it easy for me is always connecting with the product and always connecting with the customer. And that's, that's been what I've done in every single role. It's, and it's simple, really. If you, if you take a classic category management approach and you understand where's the customer coming from yeah. and what are we really good at and where do the two meet, then you'll have success. And, and that's what I'm still doing today, really. Yeah. And when, when you first took over, what were the immediate challenges? You know, you were about to then go through overhauling the, the sort of mm. interior and the look of the food hall, those yeah. sorts of things. But what were the biggest challenges facing you when you first started? Uh, I suppose there were, there were many, but the two big ones, I guess, were for me personally, not having been involved in the concept to implementation shop fit process before and doing that with a national treasure was kind of <laughs> terrifying um, in some ways but exhilarating as well so to take these you know heavily protected listed uh, food halls the environment that everyone knows so well the Edwardian features the tiling uh, the, the marble floors and so on and then to be told you've got to decide what the overall macro space layout is going to be, what the fixtures are going to look like, how they're going to operate, what products you're going to sell in them now, but not just now, but in five, ten years' time when, you know, these assets are kind of reaching maturity as well. Um, that was a big challenge, but amazing to do. Yeah, um, and the fresh food hall, which is the first one that I did when I started, we only had 12 months to do that entire cycle. Um, and that links to the second challenge, which was some legacy supply chains, I suppose, that Harrods had, which um, having come from a more ethical food background, I was very keen to understand better and to see what the opportunities were to, to improve those. Were, were there any specific examples of things that almost not, not had to go immediately, but you thought, right, this, this needs changing straight away here? Um, yeah, there certainly were. So I, I think that where we've made the biggest difference over the past five years is in supply chains around uh, meat, fish, um, and lately, tea and coffee and cocoa sourcing. Um, and if you're interested to hear more about those, that's all on the harrods.com website, quite a bit of content. But particularly on UK-sourced meat and fish, um, quite early on we partnered with the Marine Conservation Society, uh, who I've previously worked with in my time at Abel & Cole, to um, only focus on selling and processing fish that are rated one to three on their sustainability scale, for example. So that meant re removing any red-rated fish from sale. Um, and as far as meat goes, we wanted to make sure that all of the meat sourced from the UK was um, in line with the RSPCA, RSPCA Five Freedoms model. Um, so that meant a, a whole new supply chain, actually, to be honest, on, on meat at the time, wow. uh, which was an amazing process to go through. But luckily, I brought some fantastic contacts uh, you know, with me from, from my experience doing that. Um, in the organic and ethical world previously. And what, just take us behind the curtain at Harrods of like the ratios of you know, in-house products mm. uh, versus brands you bring in and sure. what, what, how that operates on a sort of daily basis. Yeah, yeah. And when we were talking about this a little bit beforehand, you, you were surprised by some of those ratios. Massively, yeah. 
Um, and, and I don't know if it will surprise others or not, but um, over 50% of our sales are on Harrods' own label products. Um, so, yeah, much higher than I think. Yeah, perhaps it's much higher than people would, would, would recognize. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that I, I include in those numbers anything that's sort of sold loose in the counter as well, if you like. So those, those fresh produce categories, loose chocolates and, and uh, bakery and patisserie. Um, and also it's because, I suppose, our brand partnerships are relatively selective. Um, we're not previously in the habit of churning through a lot of brands you know, new brands to market, very sort of small innovative brands. Mm -hmm. I suppose to some extent the reason I'm here today is to say we are, we are interested in that again, I suppose. You know, we don't want to miss the innovation that brands bring and offer and it's incredible to see what's going on, you know, here today. Course, yeah. uh, so many brands doing so many interesting things. Um, but the other thing to bear in mind is that we have um, 230 chefs operating in the bowels of Harrods. Harrods is seven floors up and seven floors down um, so it's, it's, it's lower deeper than the Piccadilly line at, at its lowest point Incredible. Um, and on the sub-basement second level there are, there's a huge bank of chefs who are making not just things for the 26 restaurants that we've got in Harrods but also for the food halls themselves uh -huh. um, and the real centres of excellence that we have are in our production kitchen where if anyone's been recently they'll have seen the investments we've made in our sandwiches range which is I would say probably the most beautiful and delicious kind of handmade sandwich range um, that you can get in the UK and certainly the biggest scale of its type yeah. and the same goes for patisserie fine patisserie where I, I, I haven't done any validation of this but I, I think we probably have the highest volume of handmade fine patisserie going through any retail outlet in uh, in London probably only rivaled by some outlets in Paris so there's a big focus on what we make ourselves there's a big focus on um, the heritage products that people know expect us for of you. and yeah. expect of us. Yeah. Tea, um, uh, biscuits, preserves. Uh, I'm definitely on the lookout for you know, biscuits and preserves this, this week, actually, um, and potential private label and um, partner brands mm -hmm. um, in those spaces. Um, but where we're seeing the biggest success at the moment is in confectionery. Wow. Yeah, okay. massive growth. Why do you think that is? Why? I think people are ready to treat themselves a little bit. I think there's some consumer mindset stuff going on. I think we did do a good job of the Chocolate Hall, which was refurbished and reopened back in May last year. Um, and we just focused on the categories that people really love us for. So we have the biggest range of Dragé, that's chocolate-coated fruits and nuts, um, uh, under one private label in the world. Um, and that's a huge growth area for us. Wow. We're, we're sort of... Yeah, we shift a phenomenal amount of, of, of that type of product. The, as we spoke about before, Harrods is such a globally recognised brand that with that comes potentially a bit of pressure to be at the forefront of innovation mm. across the board, yeah. sustainability, uh, how you're uh, displaying products on the shelves. How do you firstly like, keep on top of that? And mm. does that feel like an, an, a pressure that comes with the role? I think that's an expectation for sure. When yeah. I, I, and I... I I'm, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure people aren't here to, to find out more about me, but to find out more about Harrods, you know, it's, it's a globally recognised brand and, and, uh, and it plays a part in, I think, the public imagination. Um, and one of the challenges is to make sure that you're fulfilling all those very lofty expectations of, you know, because many people went to Harrods for the first time when they were a child and that engendered a sense of wonder and for the most part, people are coming back to rekindle that wonder <laughs> in, in, in a visit. So how do we... How do we do that? How do we create that? It's like you're juggling uh, being a department store whilst being a tourist attraction, which is a for very sure. unique yeah, the thing footfall, to be doing. The footfall for the whole of Harrods is, yeah. is very high, one of the highest of any um, retail or non-retail destination in London. Um, and most people who visit Harrods will walk through the food halls as part of their like visit. Like it's a museum. Like it's, yeah, <laughs> like it's just an experience. I and mean, it needs to not be a museum. It no, needs to be so. alive. Um, and real, and the way we've achieved that, I think, is by having manufacturing taking place, um, you know, artisan handmade production taking place on the shop floor. Whether that's our sourdough baguettes being baked in the in-store bakery, which is open for all to see, or the handmade chocolates in our chocolate kitchen, which is in the chocolate hall. There's things you can achieve with those products if they're being made fresh and sold straight away from a moisture content perspective, from the freshness of the inclusions, 
because you don't get the fat migration from nuts through the cocoa solids and so on and so forth, that you can't achieve with a stable shelf life product. So I think once you connect with customers around those kinds of stories, um, they're hooked, you know, yeah. uh, that, that's what they're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. And when you said before that the, perhaps the ratio of products you have in-house is greater than people expect, so it becomes even more exclusive for a brand to partner with you mm. and be on those shelves. Mm. Can you talk us a bit through that process and how you select the brands you work with? Of course. Um, I mean, we receive so many uh, messages every day. Um, from Does that take all forms? People emailing you, yeah, sliding LinkedIn, into DMs, yeah, all, that. Li- all of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but I welcome that. I mean, that's a, that's fantastic, mm-hmm. um, and that's one of the ways in which you understand what's going on um, in in the world of innovation and marketing. You also keep abreast of the latest sales techniques. There are some very ingenious, clever, really, yeah, especially in younger generations. You know, sales techniques that are um, that are you know bubbling up. Yeah. Um, I would say social plays a huge part in that. So, you know, when you're marketing your brand to consumers, you're also marketing it to prospective buyers. So have that, you know, have that in mind. Um, So that's one form. But also we need to be on the front foot as well. And I think it's fair to say that because of the refurbishment program that we've been going through for the past five, five years, we've been fairly inward looking. You know, we've been focused on uh, business cases, on designing fridges in, in, in Italy, uh, where, where they're manufactured, and, and haven't had the time or headspace that I would have liked to be, you know, in this forum, for example. Um, and so, having done that project, having built it, and seeing the, the growth that we're now seeing, the time is right for us again to be understanding what role brands play, um, you know, in our um, in our portfolio. So there's actually no formal way to get your attention, so to speak. People are being creative, but that's good. You're inviting that. Yeah, it's, it's more organic, you're right. Um, we, we don't have um, meet the buyer days. Uh, we, ha- we have done in, in the past. At the moment, that's not part of our program, but maybe it will be again. Uh, the big thing, thing for us is still balancing that priority we have for our own label. You know, people come to Harrods to a very large extent to understand uh, and engage with Harrods as a brand uh, and take away a piece of Harrods. So yeah. our own label will always be so important to us for that reason. You know, people physically want to engage with the Harrods brand and food uh, is the only category in which they can do that. We're sure. the only own label part of the Harrods, you know, business. Yeah. Uh, us and the and the signature gift sort of categories, uh, souvenirs and so on and so forth. Um, so that's that's a really high priority, you know, for us. Um, the role that brands play is in innovation, discovery, taking risks, um, connecting with customers in categories where where we don't have the expertise to do so. Uh, you can see that really in our fresh food. Um, sort of concessions in the market hall. You know, you've got um, fresh pasta, you've got um, Michelin-style chefs doing Indian food, um, you've got Pan-Asian offering, um, you know, smaller startup brands like Kaleido Rolls doing really super fresh Vietnamese summer rolls and, and so on and so forth. There's, there's a big role for brands to play in that fresh space. Yeah. And, in the, and in the ambient world, it's more about understanding how you, how you support the Harrods customers' culinary journey. If they're yeah. buying a beautiful um, cut of, you know, beef or, um, you know, uh, or, or some fresh pasta, what is it? What is it that brands can do to augment and build that experience as well? Absolutely. And what uh, are there any examples of brands that you know you've maybe not taken a risk on or sort of uh, you know thought this could work? Not sure, and it's gone on to be even greater than you expected. Um, yeah, I mentioned the fresh pasta um, yeah. concession that we've got, pasta evangelists in the, in the food halls. Uh, I, I just tell this one because I think it's a nice story of the investment um, life cycle of a, of a startup brand um, as much as anything. Uh, I, think it was a, I think it was a paid ad that popped up on my Instagram feed six years, five years ago. Um, and I just like the look of the brand, really. Uh, I, I found a way to contact Alessandro Savelli, uh, the founder, I think through their website, live, yeah. live chat on the website. Wow. I just said, hi, <laughs> I'm from Harrods. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I, I, like, I like the look of your brand. I think my eye was caught by the fact that they were you know, backed by True Leith, Bill Sitwell, sure. Giles Corrin, and, and so on. So I thought there must be something in that. So those, those sorts of, that association was very powerful for them, I think, as a brand. But they, at the time, they were just a very, very small subscription startup doing boxes of pasta through the letterbox that they've hand-filled in a kitchen, wow. you know, not too far from here. 
Um, but I loved what they were doing. And my background was in subscription, fresh food subscription. So uh, I had a bit to offer them in terms of, uh, you know, help, helping to understand the dynamics of those businesses, connecting them with some people in the space. And I said, in return, are you interested in looking at a physical opportunity um, in, in Harrods? And I think for them, it fitted with their with their marketing program at the time um, and with their desire to get into to sort of physical space. And of course, it landed incredibly well in the food halls because it's so beautiful to look yeah. at the product. Um, it's delicious and you could buy fresh pasta made on the spot a la minute and, and take it away. Uh, and I had a gut feel that fresh pasta was about to have a bit of a, you know, a, bit, sure. a bit of a moment, which was a punt. And so lucky. had you gone through those feelings and thoughts about it and contacted them before you tried it? Yeah, yeah, before I tried the product. Yeah, yeah I, I, then, I think around the same time I ordered a box yeah. um, to try it for myself to see if there was something in it. Um, we had loads of conversations. We brought them in. I introduced them to the managing director. He said, fresh pasta's never going to work. <laughs> um, and so I had to convince him that, that, that it would. Um, and so that's an example of, of taking a risk. But the reason I think it connected with customers was because of that visual impact because pasta's a very honest product. And yeah, honest very category. humble. It's not very that humble. luxurious like other things you'd associate yeah, Harris absolutely. with necessarily. No, no, for sure. But, um, but it can be done. Any humble product can be done in a way that makes it luxurious. That's the amazing thing about food as a category mm-hmm. is it's where people go for, to elevate their experience, to celebrate, to, you know, to invest a bit in treating themselves or giving a gift to someone else. Yeah. Uh, pasta can even be given as a gift, and, and it is. You know, yeah. if you buy it from Harrods, packaged in a certain way. Um, so it all had all those hallmarks, and luckily it worked out. Of course, last year I think it was, they were, you know, invested in 50% by Barilla for, you know, for a huge sum. Amazing. Who were looking for a way, amazingly, an Italian pasta brand looking for a way to um, do pasta, fresh pasta, both in the UK market, but also to bring back to the Italian market. So wow. a, a nice example as well of where London entrepreneurialism or UK entrepreneurialism was was leading leading the way yeah so reassuring Mm. to hear Mm. you mentioned before about um uh confectionery and so you know what what are the other are there any other sort of particular areas that you're really like looking at right now to develop yeah as I mentioned before uh we're just well we're in a big um redesign process for all of our packaging at the moment um which we're about 40% 40% of the way through, having relaunched all of the confectionery last year. We're now looking at the traditional foods. So tea is happening. We're about 50% of the way through that. Um, and the rest, the, the sort of the tinned stuff still to come. Mm-hmm. Biscuits, preserves. So I'm very interested in those, uh, those classic categories that people think of us for um, and ha- tend to have the Harrods name on them. So I'll definitely have my eye out for artisan producers and so on. And I, and I think for us it's important. We we're a global brand and a very mainstream brand, but with very small artisan producers in our ecosystem at, at our heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think because we're still just one department store at the end of the day, we do, we do sell through other channels in a modest way, but in food, 80% of what we sell is through the food halls. Yeah. Um, and it's one shop. And so the volumes aren't astronomical. We can still other provide that quality under under a globally recognized brand that's one of the things that makes harrods quite fun to work with from from my perspective absolutely um i've spoken to loads of businesses over the last couple of days about how uh things have changed for them through after all the adversity we face over the last couple of years perhaps people have pivoted moved in directions they didn't anticipate operationally or even their products uh, mm. are there any things that have changed for you guys for the for the better actually because you were forced to adapt yeah for sure uh, there's a couple of ways, I, I, I guess, that spring to mind. One is the fact that we launched on Ocado. Um, I actually think there are so many brands here that are also listed with Ocado, so it'd be good to share experiences. Uh, that opens the brand up to a, a wider number of uh, customers. We didn't have that in our strategy. That was a complete wow. um, pivot that we made during the pandemic. During the store closure, we were closed for five months. Mm-hmm. We really wanted to continue to get the product out to, to our customers which we can do to some extent through our own website, but we don't have the reach in UK grocery that obviously Ocado do. We love working with them, and we've learned a lot so far. It's our first time exposed to ratings and reviews on, online. I oh, worked with ratings and the reviews. Joys, yeah, yeah, the joys of ratings <laughs> and reviews. So it keeps you very honest from a product quality perspective, from a value for money perspective, which is not something we're necessarily normally exposed to in the very lush you know, surroundings of the food halls. So it's a, an interesting challenge to make sure that your products stand up in and of themselves 
um, outside of their native environment, um, which is what products always have to do when they're sold online. Um, and one of the reasons I think there will ultimately be a limit to penetration online is because you don't get the complete experience. Um, and then the other uh, thing that springs to mind is in the investment that I was mentioning before in experience. In, uh, you know, experience is obviously, it was always a big part of retail. It's why I sort of fell in love with all of my jobs, even before my career, my Saturday jobs, they were always in retail because you're on a, on a stage, you're performing um, you know, for your customers, you're part of their experience. And customers, for Harrods in particular, are, as we discussed, looking for that connection that experience. So how do we continuously push that? Educating our staff about our products so that they can tell the stories about who's making them, where they came from. Yeah. Is, it big, is there a big onus on that internally? Uh, you know, what is the process for staff members to learn about new products and brands? Because I assume things just can't go on the shelf and then the mm. staff just read the back and then you know, there has to be an education yeah. into what's, what's Mo out there. Mostly, mostly brands are very willing and you know, really super keen to come in and, and educate staff about brands. So we have great um, education programs for, uh, for customer-facing retail staff mm -hmm. um, where it, uh, it tends to be a new brand will launch uh, and, and do a sort of a full experience and an education sort of session with, uh, with the retail colleagues who are going to be working with that product. But any, anyone can join. Yeah. Anyone can come along. Um, so that's important. We take um, our customer-facing staff in certain specialist categories to visit suppliers, to fully understand and immerse themselves in the supply chain. So uh, when we're looking at our, where our meat comes from, the butchers come with, um, right. where we're looking at some of our ingredients that go into the prepared food and the restaurant supply chains come from, the chefs are with us. You know, it's a joint, that's very much a collaborative effort. And of course, in wines and spirits, which I'm also responsible for, it's a specialist category. We, we you know, we're a beacon for people who already know about the product and category to come and share their knowledge and passion with, uh, with customers. But also they get to go on trips to Amazing. Bordeaux, Burgundy, um, and so it's a perk of the job, I guess, but one that's really valuable to customers as well yeah. uh, in terms of educating them about the, the products. Uh, so day to day, uh, I mean, again, it's something that's come up a lot when we've been doing interviews across uh, the past two days at the Fine Food Fair. Um, supply chain issues across the board for various reasons. Is that something that day to day is impacting your job? Is that uh, yeah, big yeah. time? Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think probably half my time is spent wow. managing availability, cost pressures, and movement of goods. Maybe more at the moment, which is not normal no, no, no. Uh, by any means. And I don't know if other people are experiencing the same, I'm sure other people are experiencing the same issues. I know our suppliers are. Um, Perhaps in a weird way, people will be reassured that Harrods are facing that too, in a even weird way. Even Harrods, maybe especially Harrods. Like I said, we don't have a super yeah. developed supply base. We're talking about people who are amazing at making products, but aren't necessarily logistics mm -hmm. specialists or forecasting specialists or packaging specialists. So we have to have quite, you know, a lot of very honest conversations, very open conversations, and very reactive conversations at the moment in particular about all of those things. It's a big challenge for sure. Yeah. Uh, one of the things we're investing in is automated forecasting, demand planning, which you know most of mainstream retail operates on as you know de rigueur these days. But Harrods is a traditional department store. You know, there's a lot more you know that needs to be done in that regard for Harrods. Um, and one of the other things that I'm here to do today is to connect with existing suppliers to say. We know we're not always getting that right. We want to work with our suppliers to, to improve how we're operating, yeah. make it easier for them to build the stock, to invest in the materials, and to have the confidence that we're always going to pay on time uh, and uh, that we're going to take the volume that we've committed to. You know, it's, a, it's my main priority over the next 12 months. When, uh, we'll, if we've got time, we could potentially take a couple of questions in a second. I just have one last question about um, the, the near future and what the priorities are for you. Obviously, the, the supply chain issue is taking up the majority of your time, but what yeah. are sort of the biggest things Harrods are pinpointing in terms of evolution, sustainability, and where the store yeah. might end up? Yeah, our, our buying model is, is relatively simple, um, and the priorities more or less stay the same and or mirror the wider, the wider market. We, we run a, a category management program that's an annual cycle that we've adapted for luxury. As I said, the supply base is not always, you know, super developed in terms of the logistics side of things. So we don't, or even the insight side of things. So we spend a lot of our time uh, working out where the customers 
going globally. Yeah. Obviously, we've got a global audience as well. So we're not just looking at UK trends. You know, a big portion of our spend comes from, um, from Northern Europe, from the USA, from the Middle East, uh, from the Far East. Um, you know, those are the kind of the centers, really, where, where a lot of, especially our high-value stuff comes from. So always understanding the customer within that category management cycle is critical. So center of excellence for luxury category management is a, is a big priority for me and in, in how I'm developing my team. Quality, product quality, um, and making sure that we're really delivering on the Harrods brand promise, um, which under the stewardship of Divinia Pearl, who's uh, the new Harrods own label director, um, is, a huge, is a huge focus for us. Uh, as well, that's number two. Uh, number three, as I already mentioned, is that supplier engagement, relationship building, um, collaborating more now more than ever. We don't want to be having old school grocery tete-a-tetes with our suppliers. We want to be facing the same way into the supply chain challenges, but also into the sustainability challenges and conversation, which is the big fourth um, sort of focus for us. And we're right in the middle of a planning cycle or strategy planning sort of um, cycle for what sustainability looks like for us going forwards. The same conversations that I think everyone's having across, across yeah. the board at the moment. But for us, it sort of falls into four broad areas, which is in food, this is uh, being smart and regenerative in agriculture and aquaculture. Uh, making sure that we put the people first from an eth ethical perspective um, and the animal first from a welfare perspective throughout our entire supply chain. So what does that look like going forward? What decisions, even difficult decisions, do we need to make? Um, designing products for circularity, um, which is a word that I'm hearing more and more, and I'm sure other people are hearing more and more, but for us it's just uh, making sure that the materials and resources that are used in our, all of our products and packaging are designed in such a way that they can be used indefinitely, continuously, or returned safely and with zero impact to the natural environment. Um, luckily, we don't waste a lot uh, of product, but we want to reduce even further the, the waste that we're producing, the food waste that we're producing. Yeah. Um, and the fourth area is just in understanding what role luxury food and fine food and specialty food has to play in a healthy and balanced lifestyle. So those are the four domains that we're really talking about very actively at the moment. And I think we'll be able to share more about that over the coming months uh, as a business. Yeah, It's fascinating. Um, great. Have we got time for one, one question? One? One. one. Oh, brilliant. Ah, we've got a guy over here. If we're able to get a mic to him. Thank you. Hi there. Can you hear me? Yeah. Hi. Um, Hi. Thanks for the question. Um, so I work for a coconut water company. And my question would be, for sort of smaller brands who'd want to work with Harrods, do you have like a, a list of items you require in terms of working with Harrods that we would sort of need to hit as in like certain quantities, sustainability, um, anything like that, just sort of top down, maybe you have like five points you always consider every time you work with someone new. I just wanted to know if you could elaborate on that. Yeah, um, I guess that, uh, do you mean in terms of um, getting our interest or in terms of actually the operational sort uh, of complexity of supplying us? Uh, both, really, okay. if you have time. Yeah, yeah, well, I'll try I'll run it I'll briefly. I think I touched a bit on, on what it takes to gain our interest. I think the key thing is, what role does your product play in the lifestyle of our customers? You know, um, and bear in mind, this is, um, you know, food's quite democratic, obviously, so we do have all, all comers and, you know, uh, all, all types of customer. Um, but in particular, when a customer's looking for something special, either for a, from a celebration perspective or to, you know, make the everyday special, or they're looking for something that really forms part of a um, considered healthy, balanced lifestyle, but has to also be beautifully packaged and really be kind of uh, holistically sort of considered. And I think sometimes that's where some smaller and challenger brands maybe fall down is they, you know, it, you know, it takes a lot, doesn't it, to develop a product and packaging. Um, and once you're on a track, sometimes you're on that track. And, and how can you be dynamic and make sure that if you wanted to adapt, and we're really serious about getting a listing in, in a sort of premium environment, what does the premium version, the even more premium version of your product look like? I think that's one consideration. Logistically, um, I think I, I've said that we're not necessarily running the most advanced supply chain in the world. So it's being available to, to speak. Um, holding us accountable for when we're not available and just having that honest conversation being proactive at the moment because we're seeing growth that we didn't imagine would be ha sort of possible post-pandemic. So we need our suppliers to help us come to the table with volumes and um, really keep, you know, keep the wheels moving, I suppose, uh, uh, as well. Um, so it's, it's really just about availability and good communications. Um, and also, 
uh, booking in on time. You know, really boring stuff. So boring, but the basics, you know, uh, which, which I think um, sometimes can be overlooked because you're, you're bus- running a small band, you're, brand, you're busy and stretched. So, you know, all things, you know, a lot of marketing, um, a lot of product development, a lot of these sorts of events. So how do you outsource or manage the logistics in a really kind of tight, contained way so that you can supply people like us um, on a regular basis at relatively short notice? Does that help? Excellent. Um, thanks so much, uh, everyone. Um, we've, we've been recording this for a podcast uh, via the Food FM network. You can follow us uh, via our website. Also, all the usual podcast places, so Spotify, Apple Podcasts. If you want to share this with your friends, family, or even colleagues, businesses, if you think this conversation was useful, Andre, thanks so much for joining Pleasure. us. Thank you. Thank you. Online, on smart speakers, and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. My name is Patrick. I am the owner of the Teen Fish Market. The Teen Fish Market started in 2018. It's all about Teen Fish. We import product from Spain, Portugal, and Scandinavia. We have the biggest Teen Fish range in the UK. Uh, for example, we have more than 50 different types of sardines only. You can find anything from smoked oysters to squid. We have large tins of albacore tuna from the Basque Country. Uh, and today we are also having some, some little tasters, uh, if you want to try some mussels or sardinillas. We are very big online, uh, that's our main business. We also have a shop in Borough Market, and the reason we are here in the Speciality Food Fair is that we want to reach um, out to, to, to shops, to delis, uh, we want to grow our distribution side of the business. And why did you set this company up in the first place? What was the, was there a moment in your life? What was the sort of the profound reason that you thought, right, I'm going to go for this now in 2018? We believe that Tin Fish is very relevant at the moment. It's very sustainable. The waste is almost zero. Um, the shell life is really long. It's very easy to prepare. You don't need to do much to make something really tasty and delicious and nutritious and healthy. So, so yeah, I think it's, 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 people is rediscovering Team Fish at the moment. Yeah, that's really encouraging to hear. Sustainability is one of the sort of main uh, things that keeps coming up in all these chats I'm having with people around the, the, the food fair. Do you think it's also meaning more to the customer as well now? Like they actually, they care more about where their food is coming from than perhaps they have in previous years. Absolutely. I think you can have a business at the moment and not be aware of the sustainability aspects of your business, of your product. is is definitely key. Um, yeah, it's definitely key. We Everyone has to do their part. In our case, um, it's working with canneries that put a lot of care um, in the product. For example, our tuna is, is all pollen line. It's all thin when it's still fresh. There is no, no time between when the, when the product arrives and, and when it's prepared. And, 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 and the same for, for everything else. Uh, the anchovies, they are catch following really, really strong quotas. You know, they, they, they follow a, a quota of, of, of fish that they can take every time. And what's it like being at the Fine Food Fair here today, you know, meeting other people, showing people your products? It's, you know, online sales is amazing, but is it nice to see, you know, the picture on people's faces when they try your food for the first time? For me, it's really interesting because I'm meeting people who I was doing business with, but we, we never met before. So, so that's, that's very interesting. It's, it's a way to, to meet face to face and to meet new people. Um, interesting people. Some of them work doing this or some of them are potential customers. Some others, they may work in something very different, but it's all inspiring. Excellent, fantastic. And what's your website for those listening? Where can they go and find you? So they can find me in theteamfishmarket.com. Thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you. Hi, I'm Laura Johnson. I'm from Cakes in the Lakes. We're based in Keswick in the Lake District. So uh, 13 years ago, we uh, had a cafe, uh, or we started out in a cafe in Keswick High Street, uh, making fresh cakes and serving lovely coffee. Uh, And the more cakes we made, the demand for the the cakes kind of grew. And uh, we started messing about with sort of tray bakes and tiffins and things, and it just grew from there, really. And now we've sold the cafe, and we're in a a bakery just outside Keswick. 
uh, and we wrap and distribute all over the, the county and the country now. So, yeah. Wow, that's incredible. So you didn't even necessarily set out to do that. You just had a cafe and it just naturally went in that direction. Is that right? It did. It, it's all grown kind of organically, which um, is it's in, and continuing to do so. So I'm finding new avenues to explore all the time, having sold the coffee at the coffee shop uh, and having more time to kind of experiment with different things. So was it a, a big... Uh, experimental journey you know things like uh, fudge brownies and tiffins there's probably a thousand different recipes out there with slight tweaks was it a long journey to get the product to the level that you wanted to get it to it's a continual journey and um, you know things are changing all the time and every day I look at something every, I look at our products and think we need newer and fresher so it's it's constantly changing but at some you know for a, a short period of time you have to stop still and sell what you've got and then maybe a year later, have a look at it all again and keep going, so. Excellent, how many different products exactly do you have now? Well, I've got over 100 different barcodes, I know that, so on, on items, so that's how many things we do, so. Fantastic, predominantly you guys online as well as a, a shop up in the lakes, or you know, can we find you in department stores, supermarkets, that sort of thing? So we, have, we, sell, we sell on Etsy, we sell online from our own website, and uh, yeah, we distribute, uh, around the lakes in our van, our trusty um, cake van, and uh, yeah, the courier picks up every day, so it's available far and wide. Excellent. Just uh, one quick question, uh, a topic that keeps coming up uh, with loads of different people I speak to here at the fair is like sustainability, about either packaging or, you know, transit, all that sort of thing. How much, has that been a sort of a, a prevalent issue for you guys in the last couple of years as you've tried to grow at all? Having growing at, well, Growing at all different levels of what we do, it's a constant learning curve and finding out about the best way to do things. And you're not always there straight away. So, um, yeah, we, we question everything. Every time we make a big purchase, it's, is it the right thing? Is it the best person, you know, people, is it the best place to buy things from? For example, we did originally um, have bags produced and packaging produced in India. Well, I don't know why, because now we have it produced in Leeds, but you know, that's what we did at the time. <laughs> And do you get uh, like the chocolate, which I assume is one of the core ingredients for a lot of things you do, where do you get those, the, the chocolate from? Well, currently we use uh, the bakery suppliers that we can, you know, get a good supply of because the last thing we want to do is not be able to sell to our customers. So that consistent supply is really important. Um, we have had different people come into us today, even from Venezuela and various other countries trying to sell us chocolate. But that worries me because, well, Again, I need to be able to, my orders need to, I need to get them out the door every week. And if I'm stood waiting for chocolate, I'm losing money. So thanks so much for talking to us. You. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, hi, my name's Jack. This is uh, White Box Cocktails. Fantastic. Now, really striking brand. Awesome like imagery on the cans that I can see here. Can you just uh, give us a sort of a synopsis of what this product is and what you guys are all about? Sure. It's, we, we make excellent cocktails that are ready to drink. So they're all at... Uh, bar strength and have everything that you want a cocktail to be uh, in the can. So if it says margarita, it actually tastes like a margarita. If it says Negroni, it actually tastes like a Negroni. As uh, a lot of cans and a lot of canned cocktails that we found researching the brand before we started ended up bastardizing the, the, the cocktail to fit the can or the other way around. Uh, and so we wanted to kind of turn that on its head and make things taste actually how they're supposed to taste. Got you. So, uh, and white box, where does that, that name come from? Yeah, so it's, it's actually an architectural term. So it comes from um, when you're building a new space that's supposedly kind of retail or office or anything like that, you put in the architecture, you put in the, the lighting and the electrics and the plumbing and the, 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 the air conditioning, um, but there's nothing to fill it and that's a white box. So that's how we treat our cocktails. So each one, we start off as a, um, as a white box as, as from ground zero and we let that cocktail kind of speak to us as to what it's going to look like in the end. So the design comes from the cocktail rather than us dictating what the design's going to be. Love that. That's a really cool philosophy. Um, obviously, like a big challenge that I suppose on the face of it you wouldn't necessarily think of right away is like with wine or beer or th it's sort of a, the, the one thing in the can. Yeah. Whereas every cocktail is a, a smorgasbord of ingredients yes. that you then have to, you're not even making, you're outsourced. So there's a lot to source there. Is yes. that, that must be a, not a nightmare, but that must be a big yeah. old project. I, I mean, we're really fortunate. We, we run a gin company. Way, way before this was, this was even born, we run a, run a gin company, it's called Porter's Gin and a, a whiskey company, it's called Glasshouse. And so 
you'll see our very first cocktails were gin-based. So it helps that we kind of have our own gin that we can use and, and kind of experiment with. Um, but really, sourcing stuff is all about relationships and finding the right people to, to have what we need. So, so we, we deal a lot with um, Italian producers for vermouths and um, bitters and things like that. Um, but then we're also talking with um, Mexican um, uh, producers, we're talking about our, our tequila. And so we're always looking for partnerships rather than thinking, hey, this is the, the cheapest juice that we can put in our drinks or this is the cheapest uh, you know, spirit. We're always looking for someone that we feel is going to work well with us, whether that be a smaller producer or um, someone that we, can, we know we can get a decent quality every single time. I think uh, over the last few years it feels like it's become a bit more of a crowded market, the whole cocktail in a can thing. Was What was the uh, sort of like the opportunity you guys wanted? Was it that whole sort of, you know, actually replicating it close to the cocktail that you would get in a bar? Was that the thing? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're a company of bartenders. That's our, that's our entire background. Um, you know, we, we own a bar up in Aberdeen, uh, which is called Orchid. Um, and that's like the premier cocktail establishment of the town where everybody would go for the best drink. Um, and so we kind of get the, the ethos of bartending where you put whatever you put in front of someone has to be the best thing they've ever had or the best thing they're going to have that night or the thing that they're going to write home to about or chat with their friends about. And we wanted to really translate that into the canned cocktail category, which, frankly speaking, is, is, is kind of naff. You know, they're kind of throwaway, kind of they're designed to be drunk on trains or traveling to somewhere or as like a pre-drink to a party or something like that. Um, and we didn't necessarily want to take away from that, but we wanted to bring quality to that arena rather than um, just be another drop in the bucket of another brand that's making exactly the same thing. Of course, no, that makes perfect sense. And where, where can people find you guys? I assume you've got a website that you can buy directly from, but do you uh, exist in supermarkets or endeavor to? Yeah. So we're not in supermarkets just yet, but you can find us on whiteboxcocktails.com. Um, we do a uh, gifting pack, so you can do a mix and match box of six that comes in a really nice box and you can send to your pals and stuff like that. But you're also going to find us in about 350 sites uh, nationwide, likely going to be your local deli or your bottle shop. We deal a lot with um, uh, uh, beer distributors as well. So you're going to find us in, in your kind of local, anywhere, anywhere that you can get like parmesan fries or like decent crisps, you're more than likely going to find us as well. Awesome. That's a good way of contextualizing it for people. Uh, lastly, what sort of uh, opportunity does the, the Fine Food Fair offer for you guys? Is it not just customers, but also the other businesses you can meet? Like, What's the, the proposition for you? Yeah, so, so this is the first actual trade show that we've done that's properly trade focused. Um, and what's really great, what we've had so far is, is talking with the stockists that already have us that come in and say, hey, this is great. And actually speaking with someone face to face would be like, this goes really well. How about you do this? Or they have ideas for us and maybe what we could do in the future. But also it's being exposed to people who have never seen the brand before, um, who are genuinely interested or maybe they own a business that they would have never seen us before, like garden centers or something like that. Um, they have the opportunity to come speak with us and be like, hey, look, we want to keep this. We want to put this in our shop or uh, we want to put this on a bar or anything. Um, and it, it's really being exposed to a wide array of people. And the people here are amazing. I, I, I've done a lot of trade shows, but generally the people here are more engaged and more uh, attracted to, to what we're doing. It's amazing. Yeah, that's nice. it's like a like-mindedness, isn't there? Yeah, it's really nice. Uh, lastly, what is the either like the gateway one or like the, the flagship? You know, what's the one you'd go try this first? You know? so, so probably the one that we're most famous for is the Pocket Negroni. That is uh, definitely the first one I'd go for. I haven't found a food style yet that it doesn't go with, but pizzas and burgers are perfect for it. Um, but it can be quite a, uh, quite a uh, chalk and cheese or Marmite kind of um, drink. It's very, very strong, very bitter, and, uh, and very sweet. So I'd probably go for the Disco Baby, which is uh, a vodka soda with watermelon and lemon thyme. And it's uh, like an afternoon refresher. It's, if, you, if that's your first drink of the day, Go for a disco baby, for sure. Nice one. Now, what's the website again, mate? Whiteboxcocktails.com. So the company is called Loud and Chocolate. My name is Stephen Trigg. I am the owner and head chocolatier. Uh, such an eye-catching stand, uh, Stephen. Like the most decadent-looking, almost artful chocolate. Um, just explain to us what we, what I can see in front of me here, and what makes your your chocolate products so unique. Thank you. So yeah, so they're very visual and very eye-catching, like you say, because people are attracted to food by their eyes. We see with our eyes first, but um, but after that, the taste is the most important thing. So 
what we've got on display, we've got some retail boxes that people can use in artisan delis and fine food halls. We've got some packaged nuts and things, uh, a range of origin bars that we've just launched at the show. So, so like fine wine, we've got different regions of the world with different percentages of cocoa in them. It's, it's obvious just through looking at them what makes them so unique. But obviously from the outside, people might just go, wow, chocolate, super crowded market. You know, wh why get into the world of chocolate? What was it that inspired you to start this, this journey? Uh, it's funny you say that. So I started the journey back, uh, the company was formed in 2008, but we started our journey before that, me and the wife, which was, we couldn't like chocolate. We, liked, we couldn't find and buy chocolate we liked to eat. Uh, so we just started making our own at home. Uh, and then it took us on this amazing journey. Yeah, there's, great, there's a lot of places in the market, a lot of competitors, but it's when we were looking, we wanted to find something that we personally enjoy to, uh, to eat. And that's why we started this journey. Excellent. And where, where do you, is it predominantly online sales? Are you in various, uh, you know, delis or that sort of thing? Like where, where's sort of your main business from? We do a lot of seasonal trade with fine food halls, delicatessens, uh, farm shops. Uh, there's a, a strong online presence and we do a lot of catering and hospitality. Excellent. And you mentioned there that you source loads of different light wine, loads of different chocolate from around the world. That's obviously lot, lots of issues come with that, you know, sustainability, sourcing, all that, that must be a bit of a minefield. Um, how have you navigated that through the last few years with that sort of societal pressure on sustainability and, and packaging and transit, that sort of thing? Well, to address the, the cocoa, so basically we work with a company uh, that's Cocoa Horizons. So they uh, manage that whole ethos around, are the farmers being paid enough? Um, so we know we're getting a good quality product and there's no child labor involved and things like that. In terms of the packaging, we're trying to move away from plastic as much as we can. You still need a bit to display the chocolate, so it's, it's a balancing act. It's tricky, but it's a balancing act. Uh, what about the Fine Food Fair? Is this your first time here? And if so, what, what do you hope to get out of these sorts of events at such iconic venues? Yeah, so actually, we're probably, we started our first show here in 2009. So we've been coming since then to the show. Um, so a seasoned exhibitor, as you, should you say. Um, and we, we like to connect with our current customer base and uh, meet new potential customers. Uh, I'm Jonathan Robb, I'm General Manager at Hawkshead Relish Company. Now this looks like a delightful stand, uh, so many wonderful uh, little jars full of vibrant colours. Uh, just give us a little bit of a background about what your business is and where it all started for you. So we started uh, just over 20 years ago in the Lake District in a place called Hawkshead uh, and everything's handmade in a 17th century barn, um, all on site right in the middle of the Lake District National Park. Wow, beautiful. How long's that been in existence now then? Uh, so it's been in existence since 1999, um, so we're uh, beginning to get to know what we do properly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's been a lot of trial and error in that time. Um, so, I mean, there is a large array of products here. How many different things do you produce in that, in that farm? So too many is the answer, <laughs> but uh, I think it were probably about 130 products now. We also make products for other people. Uh, so we make some products for Harvey Nichols and uh, Fortnum and & Mason and Lakeland and, and many other companies. So we, uh, our own branded products, uh, we have about 100 altogether. And, and typically, just talk us through some of the, the most popular ones or your almost signature sources, condiments. Well, it was always our Westmoreland chutney, which was the original chutney that we started with. And that was always our best seller until we started with the black garlic ketchup. Uh, which is amazing, versatile product. Uh, use it just the way you normally use a ketchup, but you can also use it as an ingredient. So put a spoonful in a soup or a sauce or a stew, mix it with mayonnaise for a dip, olive oil for a salad dressing, just fantastic. Uh, and then on the sweet side, jams and marmalades, our raspberry and vanilla jam is our best seller. Uh, and that's really popular. It looks incredible. Now, obviously, like the people will know through just supermarket shopping, that the condiments and sauces market is quite dense. Like it's hard, it must be hard to stand out. What, what sort of is your? Uh, have you felt like what the, the niche thing that people sort of attract people to, to your brand? Yeah, we always try and do something uh, with a bit of a twist. So there's always something else in it or with it that we're doing that's different to everybody else. But also, we're really fortunate to be making it in one of the most beautiful places in the country, and so we have millions literally of people on our doorstep on holiday all year round they come in our shop in Hawkshead village they buy some products and take it home they enjoy it and so then they go online and buy it and then they 
they don't need to be in the Lake District. So that's, that's the key to it really, is uh, people enjoying what they actually get and then buying it again. Of course, amazing. Now, from, so from 1999 to now, like nearly 25 years, things must have changed a lot in that, in that time. Like sustainability is a big factor that a lot of people here have talked about. How, how have things changed for you perhaps in the sort of product line or, or the, you know, where you're sourcing ingredients from and your, or your jars and supply chain? How's that all gone for you? Well, the last, the last two or three years, it's been a real challenge. And, and you can imagine getting things delivered into the middle of the national park in a large wagon is not always straightforward. Um, so it has been really challenging. Um, we always try and source our ingredients locally. Um, but of course, we're not yet growing mangoes in the Lake District. <laughs> it's wet enough, but not warm yeah, enough. Yeah. Maybe, maybe 10, 20 more years, we might get that. Well, you joke, we might, we oh, no, might. No, no. Um, but, but we do, if, even if we have to buy things from further afield, we try and buy them through local companies to keep the spend within, uh, within Cumbria. And that's been something that we've uh, worked hard on the last few years to be able to maintain that. And sometimes it's more expensive, but we prefer to do it that way. Fantastic. Uh, what's the website where people could go and check out your products and order online? Uh, so our website is hawksheadrelish.com. I'm Amy King. I'm the head of business development for Dolicious. Delicious came around uh, in 2016, so it was founded by our uh, founder, Catherine Bricken, um, and it started off, the concept started off uh, in gluten-free cookies. Uh, Catherine's uh, had some great friends who were kids with celiac, so she recognized there was a need for kind of tasty, indulgent, gluten-free product. So that's where the business started. And last November, we launched a new part of, to our proposition, which is the dochi. So taking a similar concept to what is the mochi, ice cream coated in um, a rice dough, but taking our cookie dough instead. So mochi is very much a zeitgeist line at the moment. So we're sort of trying to capitalize on that opportunity around frozen snacking desserts. And it's been a really positive show because everyone seems to be loving loving dochi, which is exactly what we want to hear. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the product looks amazing. How long has this uh, been going for, did you say? So yeah, so Delicious has been going since um, 2016. Talk us through some of the flavors and, and sort of how these products are concocted. So we've, I mean, we've got a vast array of products. Um, the ones that I've got here on, on show are using Kalina's ice cream. Um, I guess one of our main products is the, the chocolate truffle. So it's a really indulgent, uh, high cocoa content chocolate ice cream coated in a chocolate cookie dough and a cookie crumb. Um, we have the blueberry frozen yogurt for people who like things a little less, less heavy and a little lighter and more refreshing. Um, so it's a frozen yogurt rather than a, a vegan ice cream. Um, we have the Strawberry Eden Mess, which is a, a product that we're very proud to say is in, in partnership with Copperfield uh, for early breast cancer detection. So 50% of all profits from every pack sold goes to raising awareness for the charity, uh, which is yeah, the Strawberry Eden Mess. And then this is, this is my favorite, so the Cinnamon Dochi. So this is one of our newest products. Uh, so it's a cinnamon ice cream wrapped in a, a kind of a warming cinnamon churro-esque churro cookie. The, the stigma around perhaps vegan food is that is there's some sacrifice in either quality or taste to, to have the to have a vegan uh, dinner. Is that still a challenge you face, and how do you feel like you you overcome it in some way? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one because it's not a message we lead with. Um, you know, we lead with we're an indulgent uh, frozen snacking dessert, something to be you know enjoyed throughout the day. Uh, and then actually, people get surprised by the fact that it's a vegan ice cream. They're like, wow, the quality. I wouldn't even. You can't tell these things apart anymore because so much, you know, development has gone and quality and innovation has gone into it. So, you know, a vegan ice cream is just as good as a, as a dairy ice cream, to be to be perfectly frank. So, um, no, it's not a barrier at all. So good to hear. And um, in terms of like uh, the last couple of years and everything that we've all been through, has have sustainability and supply chain, have they, have they been things that have affected, affected you guys in a big way or perhaps made you pivot in ways that have been quite positive? Yeah, no, I mean, it is, it's, a, it's a, an incredibly challenging time, I think, for any food manufacturer and the retail industry. I guess one of the, you know, the biggest challenges we're facing as a small business is the rising prices. Cost inflation is, is through the roof. Um, I think what's, what's refreshing, I guess, is that retailers appear to be more collaborative in having the discussions around how to manage those rising costs. I mean, it, ultimately, it doesn't really necessarily help the consumer at the end of the day, but I think retailers are recognizing in order to keep businesses 
going, they have to take on some of the cost price increases. So, as well as just discovering new products and things here, then is is stuff like are things like this fair an enabler for those conversations where people can because there's such shared problems, they can talk to each other and give advice. Is that something that's come up at all today, for example? Yeah, I mean, we certainly you know speak to our our peer group about about what's going on, and there is a very you know collaborative, I think collegiate cohort of small manufacturers who know we're all in the same boat and trying to problem solve things together um, or get advice which is which is great so I think that community of small startup businesses um, is great and I think I think retailers are definitely more tuned into trying to work with suppliers who offer something more differentiated and I think there is an acceptance that there needs to be some more leeway when working with smaller suppliers than perhaps there would be for, for the big FMCG companies that have been around for such a long period of time. Um, so there's more of an open door, you know, to have conversations around budgets for investment or, you know, in order to, for exclusivity to work, I need something, there's something back in return. And there's, there's sort of a, yeah, there seems to be, those sorts of conversations are open to be had, which is encouraging. Sorry, what was your website? Um, so it's www.delicious.co.uk. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. For more content and stories from the world of food, visit our website now. It's foodfmradio.com. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. And please do leave us a rating and review on whichever podcast platform you're listening to. Thanks in advance for that. See you next time.